I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We're going to split up the last chapter into two weeks, and we'll finish up the book of Ruth next week in the last half of chapter 4. We'll be in Ruth 4, 1 through 12 this morning. As we turn there, I'll let you know that before I usually get up to preach, I make sure that my phone is turned off and silenced, and I saw that I had a text from one Jack Houghton, which informed me that for him, candy is good all the time. Um, uh, I thought I'd share that with you. His, if you don't know, his wife's name is Candy. So, so Jack Touche. I'll read Ruth 4, verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sir, or sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers or from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. And sometimes nothing adds good tension and suspense to a story like a good cliffhanger. A cliffhanger is when pivotal points of the plot and the character's stories are left unresolved without a satisfying conclusion. And we're left wondering what will happen next. How will this all get resolved? And TV shows have been using cliffhangers from the beginning to end a season. You leave a tantalizing question to draw you in and keep you watching the next season. If you watch the show Lost... That whole show was just one giant cliffhanger. That's all it was, is unresolved conflicts and storylines. 
And then movies, of course, sometimes will leave you with a cliffhanger, particularly if they're playing a sequel. So you have a great cliffhanger recently in Avengers Infinity War when everybody gets snapped. You know, what's going to happen? You Marvel fans know what I'm talking about. I think the granddaddy of all cliffhangers comes from a little movie known as The Empire Strikes Back, right? We're left with Han frozen in carbonite and Luke's hand cut off and just been told who his father is and he has to deal with that and you're wondering where are they going to go from here? Everything looks lost and then movie ends and you have to come back for the next. Well, our story here in the book of Ruth ends on a cliffhanger in chapter 3. If you've been with us, you know the story, but to very briefly kind of condense it, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, have been widowed. They are impoverished. They're back in Israel, seemingly without a future. But Ruth has met Boaz, a man of stature and standing in the community, who is part of her family's clan, her broader family, and in the, according to the custom of the time, he would have the opportunity to care for her to restore Ruth and Naomi through redemption, through marriage of Ruth. The problem is that, according to the custom of the time, there is one who is nearer than Boaz in the line of redemption. There's a closer family member who would have that priority. We as readers want Boaz to marry Ruth, but we know there's somebody else who might get in the way of that. They would have to deal with that person first. And that's where we leave chapter 3. There's a promise that Ruth will be redeemed either through this other redeemer or through Boaz, the man that we know. And we're left wondering, how is it going to be resolved? We're left with a promise. How is it going to be fulfilled? In many ways, it's like the ending of the Old Testament. The story of Israel, there's a bride left with a promise of redemption, and we're left at the end of the Old Testament wondering, how is this going to be fulfilled? How is this bride going to be redeemed? It's the thing that angels long to look into. How is this going to happen? The great mystery of the Old Testament. We're left with a cliffhanger. In the same way, chapter 3 ends with a cliffhanger. How will Ruth be redeemed? So that's the question we're going to answer this morning. How will the bride's redemption be accomplished? That's the question that will guide us. And we'll ask, how will the bride's redemption be accomplished? It's a question in the larger context of Scripture. And also our passage this morning. How will God redeem his bride? How will Boaz redeem his? My goal this morning was just going to walk through these 12 verses. There's a lot of ancient and foreign custom attached to here that we're going to have to unpack and some gaps that we'll have to fill in through some speculative, educated guesswork. And I'll give you my thought as to what's going on. So we're just going to walk through the story. And in the end, I hope pave the way to see our own redemption in the midst of this story through Jesus. So there, there's my goal. That's all we want to accomplish this morning. How will the bride's redemption be accomplished? First, verses 1 through 8, Boaz deals with an unworthy redeemer. That's the first thing that has to happen before anything else happens. Boaz has to deal with this unworthy redeemer, this other man who might get in the way and mess everything up before Boaz can bring redemption to Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi. Boaz deals with an unworthy redeemer. Let's read verses 1 through 8 again. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, or I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So a lot of things that are different according to our own customs of the day. Let's talk about how this plays out. So we first notice that it takes place at the gate, at the city gate. And the gate was where the walls of the city would meet and there would be an opening. That's where people entered and exited. It was also the place of business at the time. So the important and men of the city and the rulers and the rulers and the elders and the businessmen, they, they would gather at the gate and that's where business would take place. They'd make deals. They would gossip. They'd talk about the things going on in the town. They'd socialize. It was also where justice was enacted. So it was kind of like a courthouse. The cases were brought there and settled. So you could say it's kind of a town hall, it's a courthouse. That's where you go where official business is done. It's at the gate of the city, and that's where they are. Remember Naomi said in chapter 3, don't worry, Ruth, Boaz will be on top of this. He'll settle this matter today of whether you'll be redeemed by him or somebody else. And that's what Boaz is doing. He gets up early in the morning and gets there at the gate to make sure he doesn't miss anybody. And that's what happens. He gets there, and it just so happens that this other redeemer, who had priority to marry Ruth, walks by. It just so happens, behold, he comes by. Boaz takes action. He says, hey, friend, come over here. And when you read friend, you can maybe read that, hey, buddy, hey, chief, hey, pal, Come sit over here. And actually, the Hebrew quite literally is, hey, such and such. So I'm going to, through the sermon, call Mr. So-and-so. Because that's what you're supposed to think. Certainly Boaz knew his name. He knew that he was a closer redeemer than him. He knew stuff about him. He knew his name. But the author intentionally obscures his name because we're supposed to get the impression that his name doesn't matter. In fact, he doesn't matter. He will show how much he doesn't matter through the course of the text. So we read it and we say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, and that's who he is. So Boaz gathers Mr. So-and-so, and then he also gathers ten elders of the city because he has to have a quorum for doing official business. Things are about to go down, so he wants to make sure he has witnesses so that nothing can be debated. It's all official and on the up and up. And he starts the meeting with something we wouldn't expect because we haven't heard of it until now. Boaz says, hey, Naomi is selling a piece of land that belonged to Elimelech. This is news to us as a reader. We haven't heard anything about this up until now. And there's all sorts of questions as to what's going on here. How does Naomi have this land? Why have we not heard of it before? Here's my best guess as to what this is all about. It is likely that when Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons left Israel, remember they left because of famine, it's likely that the land that he owned was not producing, was not really any good, and they left it behind. And then when they left it, 
They were in 10 years in Moab, and it just continued to overrun, overgrow, lie fallow, dormant. So when she got back, the land was not producing anything for her to live off of to sustain herself. It was kind of useless, probably. So here she is selling it just to get something out of it so that she can survive. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that maybe while she was there, somebody else started using it, either legally or illegally. So somebody else was kind of running ownership of the land, and she wasn't able to make anything off it, didn't have anybody to advocate for her, so she wasn't able to survive off of it that way. Either way, this land was kind of burning a hole in her pocket, so to speak. It wasn't sustaining her, providing for her. The best thing she could do with it was to sell it because she was impoverished and she was in need, and that was all she had. The problem for Naomi is that if she sold it, she might lose it forever. She would sell it to an outsider, they would keep it. And then even if the year of Jubilee came around where the land reverted back to original owners, she had no husband, had no sons, had nobody to own it for it to go back to, so it would just be lost. That's where a redeemer could be really helpful because instead of selling the land to an outside party, sell it to a redeemer. A redeemer was somebody who was in the family tribe who had the responsibility of buying back land that was sold for family members so that they didn't lose the inheritance forever. It would stay within the family. So if she sold directly to a redeemer, that person would keep the land in the family for her and she would have it as a potential inheritance if she did indeed have heirs. So Boaz turns to Mr. So-and-so and says, would you like to be that redeemer? And the question that Boaz is asking is the same question that my brothers and I would often ask around the dinner table, which is, are you going to eat that? <laughs> and if we were in gentle good spirits, we would ask, right? Um, most of the time we fought you know, and we grabbed. But if we were being generous, we'd say, hey, are you going to eat that? Because if not, I will. Like, it's not going in the trash. We're not going to let it go to waste. Somebody's going to use that. Maggie would tell you sometimes I still ask that question. Um, but that's what Boaz is asking. Hey, hey, uh, you have first dibs, but if you're not going to eat it, I will. If you're not going to take it, I'll take it. Mr. Soto considers it says, you know what? Yes, I'll be happy to take the land. For him, this could be a good financial opportunity. Even if the land was useless now, he could invest in it in a year's time. It would build up and... What an opportunity, because the person who's buying it from doesn't have any other heirs. It's never going to go back to her, so this is a pretty decent spot to be in for him. Financially, he can take on this land and keep it for himself forever. And has the added bonus, he'd be doing the nice, noble thing and helping out a family member, right? Uh, some of you might be familiar with the old crime drama Columbo. Anybody familiar with that? It's a little bit before my time, but... <laughs> no, no offense, you know, I got Avengers, Columbo, I got to hit all demographics. Um, what was Columbo's catchphrase? He was a homicide detective who interrogate people, and his catchphrase was, oh, just one more thing, right? So he'd be questioning somebody, and they'd think, oh, okay, all over with, Columbo's off my back, and then as they were walking out the door, Columbo's leaving, he'd say, oh, hold on, just one more thing. One more question, just to seal the deal and to really 
nail the person to the wall or close the line of questioning. That's what Boaz does here. Oh, Mr. So-and-so, one more thing. Before you buy this, just know, when you do, as Redeemer, you will also redeem Ruth the Moabite, Naomi's daughter-in-law, and you'll be responsible to provide an heir and to provide an inheritance for that heir. And that presents a complication for Mr. So-and-so. You might wonder, like, why does Boaz do it this way? Why does he spring it upon him now and not up front? And what's going on here? And I, here's my best guess as to what Boaz is doing. It may be that Mr. So-and-so, that redeemer, if he wanted to, could buy the land and not redeem Ruth. If he was to do so quietly, maybe he could, through argumentation or legal maneuvering, say, I'm not obligated. She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. He might be able to find a way to wiggle out of his responsibility to redeem Ruth if he had all the cards on the table up front and knew what he was doing. And he could still get the land for himself. Boaz wants to get both Ruth and the land. So what he does is he kind of traps this other guy in the midst of this negotiation. He gets him to publicly admit, yes, I am a redeemer, and I will redeem the land since that is my role. And then Boaz gives the extra information about Ruth the Moabite. And now at that point, before everybody and before God, he is under a lot of pressure. It would be a horribly shameful thing to do and maybe outright impossible to say, no, I just want the land. I don't want Ruth. Like he's already in that situation. He's already said he's a redeemer. He can't turn back from that role now. So he has to make a choice. It's either all or nothing. And Boaz kind of put him by his own craftiness in that situation. He declines. He says redeeming Ruth could ruin him financially. He's got his own heirs to take care of, his own inheritance. And then to have to split that up amongst Ruth's potential child, no good for him. It doesn't make as much financial sense. He doesn't have the compassion or the grace, the mercy to fulfill his role to Ruth and to Naomi. So he publicly declines redemption through the strange custom of removing a sandal. Apparently it was foreign at this time as well. And the author has to explain, this is what was done at the time. And we don't know exactly where this custom comes from. I, don't, I won't read it, but Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10 talks about this custom where if somebody was refusing to redeem a widow, that widow could remove her sandal and spit in his face. So it might be related to that custom. There's also some theory that exchanging sandals in business transactions was kind of a symbolic of exchanging property, like where you set your foot, where you put your sandal, your shoe, you owned that place, it was yours. There's some hint that that might have been a, a custom for that reason. And this is me being really speculative, so I'm just guessing here. But maybe that's part of the context behind God telling Moses to remove his sandals. You're on holy ground. You don't own this place. This isn't where your shoes <laughs> tread. I don't know. But the point is, through this strange custom, they remove sandals, and it's basically our modern handshake or signing initials on the line. It's making it official. And what we have here is a contrast of redeemers. 
Boaz, the righteous, worthy redeemer who does things on the up and up while also being very clever, but uses his cleverness to care for the outcast and the downtrodden and the poor. And we have Mr. So-and-so who backs out as soon as it's going to be any trouble to him. It reminds us that we have all sorts of unworthy redeemers in our own lives, in our own world. People that we might lean on, things that we might lean on and trust for our security, our salvation, but fail us in the time of need. And that can be all sorts of things. It can be significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, financial prosperity itself, health, our families. It could be anything that we lean on and say, this will save me when everything is down and out. And we find that the things of this world often fail us, just like Mr. So-and-so. But Ruth reminds us that there is a righteous, worthy redeemer who will do all that he can. And it's impressive what he can do to redeem those in need. And that that redeemer will deal with false, unworthy redeemers. And he will get them out of the way. Boaz is the true redeemer and he will accomplish redemption for his bride through getting other redeemers out of the way. Then, verses 9 through 10, Boaz declares a perpetual redemption. Boaz declares a perpetual redemption. So he makes a public testimony that this redemption will have ongoing, lasting consequences. It will be a perpetual redemption. So look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz now addresses all the witnesses publicly. He says, I've bought everything that belonged to Elimelech. All his property, whatever is on that, any tools you find in the shed, it's all mine. He has the whole deal. And he also, in that, purchases Ruth. And maybe if you're like me, maybe it's because of my modern sensibilities, I hear those words together. He bought Ruth and we go, oh man, that sounds very patriarchal. It was. It was a patriarchy. This, that was the society at the time. We might... Struggle with that, a, a few things that I thought through as I think through, how do I you know, deal with this patriarchy that's there? Well, one, Boaz treats Ruth really well. He treats her tenderly. If you read Ruth chapter 3, he cares for her. So just because it's a patriarchal system doesn't mean there isn't love and affection and care for the bride. Two, we do something similar. We call them engagement rings where we purchase a bride. So it's not that far removed from our own time and place. Depending on what your customs were, you may have experienced some type of financial uh, down payment, so to speak. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek. What I would say more seriously is that we have to be really careful about judging and assessing other cultures, ancient or current, and looking down upon them, thinking as if we have arrived. As if our culture has figured out marriage. And our customs are just the apex of morality and righteousness when it comes to things like marriage and treatment of women. Sin plagues every society and every custom and every set of laws, no matter how perfect. And God's law was perfect, and yet still sin entered it. And 
God is righteous enough and good enough to redeem and make good out of any context or any societal structure. And here, in this wonderful scene, Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth. He will marry her. And what will that accomplish? tells us he will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So through this marriage, through their offspring, Boaz will perpetuate the name of Malon. So we now know which brother Ruth was married to. And through Boaz, Ruth's sons will carry on the lineage and the inheritance in the name of Malon because of Boaz's kindness. And that's what a redemption of a widow is all about. It protected and cared for her, and it also ensured that through the sons of the widow and that redeemer, the name of the deceased husband would live on. Through Ruth's son, Malon's line would continue, and his inheritance would be passed down, and his name would not be removed from the gates, from the town. And we might think, why is that so important? So we've talked about this a ton, redemption and inheritance and land. And we might ask, well, like, why is that all so significant? What does it mean? It's not just about having wealth to pass down. It's not just about having a reputation or a name to pass down. It's not just about preserving a memory. There is a religious and spiritual element to this as well. When you talk about carrying on somebody's inheritance and their name and their line in Israel, what kind of community is Israel? It's a religious covenant community based off of what covenant? Well, all the covenants, but it goes way back to Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham, that I will bless you and I will build out of you a people and I will settle you in a land. Like a land and inheritance was part of the promise made to God's people that you will inherit a land. That you will... um, Receive the full benefit of the promise I make to you. And to have your name removed from the land was to, in some ways, to have your name removed from the promise of God. You were no longer part of the covenant community. Your name was forgotten, and it would feel as if you were removed from God's blessing and promise and grace. We have a hard time understanding that because we don't think land is tied to our covenantal promise. When It turns out actually land is tied to our covenant, the new covenant we have in Christ. Land is tied to it. It actually is pretty significant for the promise God has made to us in Jesus Christ. Like when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I don't think he's talking about ether. That's not just a spiritual thing, that's a physical thing. He's saying, I'm actually preparing a room and a place, a physical place where you will dwell and I will dwell with you. When Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, the meek will inherit the land. That's who will inherit all of God's promise of land and inheritance. It's the meek, those who humble themselves before Jesus Christ and his Father and follow him and confess. They will inherit the earth. That's a land promise. And when we look to the end of Revelation, we read about a new Jerusalem, which is a people, but it's also a city. And there's this new creation that God is making and preparing for his people. That is a land promise. It's heaven. God is preparing a land for us. And if 
your name was blotted out or removed from the book of life, you would no longer have that land promised. And it would be an awful thing to be removed from that deed, so to speak. Having his line discontinued, his name forgotten amongst the people, would feel like having your name blotted out of the book of life. So one commentator writes, The loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation, the greatest tragedy imaginable. An Israelite's afterlife depended upon having descendants living on ancestral soil. And here in Ruth 4, Boaz has secured an inheritance for Ruth and for Naomi, but also for Malon and Elimelech. They will be partakers of the promise and have an inheritance. Boaz has become a redeemer and a savior for them. And because he's done this, he is praised and blessed by all the witnesses. And that's how this section ends. Boaz is blessed as his house's redeemer. Boaz is blessed as his house's redeemer. He is exalted, lifted up, approved, prayed for. He's blessed. Verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So as soon as the deal is done, the elders... Uh, are witnessing, praise, and bless Boaz, and they pray another prayer. And if you haven't noticed, that's a theme throughout Ruth. People are constantly praying to God for one another. And you have to love that. <laughs> it shows you that God is active in all this. People are praying to him and blessing one another over it. And they give Boaz a threefold blessing here. There's three elements to their prayer, their blessing. First, they pray that the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. There's a hint that this is somewhat of a standard customary prayer for couples who are getting married and having kids. May your house be great. May it be like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. It's a way of saying, may you have a lot of kids. They had 12 kids total. So they're saying, you know, you can get there great, but may you be fruitful. And that's kind of a standard blessing. But I think there's more going on there than just a customary blessing. Because they're giving this customary blessing to whom? to Ruth the Moabite. And they're saying, may you be like Rachel and Leah, the covenantal matriarchs of the Israelite community, leaders in the faith and their people. They're saying, Ruth, you're one of us. It's not just Boaz saying it. It's all the elders. We're all witnessing. We're all saying, Ruth, you're part of our community. May you be as great as Rachel and Leah. May your house be built up like theirs and may you bless Israel. And they had no idea how much their prayer would come true. What God was going to do through Ruth and Boaz. They also pray for Boaz. Say, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is kind of the name of the family tribe. Bethlehem was a town they lived in. They're kind of associated with one another. It's a prayer that Boaz himself would be great. May you make your family name proud. May your name be famous in Bethlehem, this little town. May your name go down in the records 
of Bethlehem, Bethlehem and may greatness shine. And again, they have no idea how much God would make good on that prayer and that promise. And lastly, they pray, their house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And why would they bring up these people? Well, Perez, who was the son of Tamar and Judah, that was Boaz's ancestor. Perez is highly regarded. Their family line is highly regarded. So they're basically saying, may your kids be as great as your name and your family line. May greatness follow through your whole family, just as it has from the beginning with Perez. The more interesting part, I think, there is the focus on Judah and Tamar. Why would they include Judah and Tamar? If you know the story of Genesis 38, I'll abbreviate it for you and leave out some of the details. Tamar was married to Judah's son. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. She was married to one of his sons. But her husband, his son, died, and she, like Ruth, was widowed. Then Judah's other son refused to redeem her and give her a son to continue the family line. So one of Judah's other sons should have been the redeemer, but he refused to play that role. So she was left unredeemed, unprotected and uncared for by this family. She is an unredeemed widow with no son or heir. So she took matters into her own hands. She took initiative and pretending to be a prostitute, she tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her and getting her pregnant. Judah admits that he was in the wrong for not caring for Tamar, not providing for her. So Judah took her as his own wife, and she had sons, one of them being Perez, the ancestor of Boaz. And I think the elders, as they proclaim this blessing, know the connection that they're making. Tamar was a destitute widow in need of a redeemer who took matters into her own hands and fought through tragic circumstances to become the mother of a great line of Israelites through redemption. Just like Ruth. A tragic situation, a messy circumstance, and God brought a redeemer into it and made good out of it. And her family line was blessed. And the elders are saying, Ruth, we hope you're like another Tamar. Reminds us that God can make good out of messy situations and messed up family circumstances and mistakes people make. And God can still bless and redeem tragic situations. And that's what they're praying for, for Boaz and Ruth. So it takes us to the end. To recap, we'll ask, again, how will the bride's redemption be accomplished? And now we know. First, Boaz deals with an unworthy redeemer. First, Boaz gets the enemy out of the way. That's what he does first as a redeemer. Before he can purchase his bride and redeem her, he gets the enemy out of the way. The one who will not take care of Ruth, the one who has no compassion or kindness, he gets that person out of the way. And isn't that like the Redeemer that we have? Do we have a Redeemer who will rid us of all enemies who might destroy us or not care for us? Do we have that kind of Redeemer who will rid the world of every false hope and deal with every threat to our salvation? 
Colossians 2.15 says we have such a redeemer. That on the cross, Jesus dealt with our enemies and our accuser. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He did it publicly, just like Boaz did. He got rid of any threat to our redemption. Second, Boaz declares a perpetual redemption. Boaz purchases his bride and also the land for inheritance. To be an ongoing, eternal inheritance that his bride and all of her children would live in. They'll have an inheritance forever. Do we have a redeemer like that? Apostle Peter thinks so. He says in 1 Peter 1.4, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That God has purchased through Jesus Christ an inheritance for his bride. And he is securing it, he is guarding it, protecting it through your faith. That's how God guards it and keeps it. And then Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus Christ has purchased us, sacrificing himself. In our place, we have a Redeemer who proclaims, who assures, who confirms an eternal inheritance. And lastly, Boaz is blessed as his house's redeemer. Because of this work of redemption that he's done, everybody praises, and all the elders there gathered around praise him for the salvation that he has accomplished, for the redemption that he has accomplished, and how he has secured that inheritance for his whole house, and saying the whole house will be built up, this whole people will be built up because of your redemption. Now, do we have a redeemer like that who is praised by the elders who surround him for the way he has purchased and built his people. Revelation says we do. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, around the throne, witnessing elders sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Just as Boaz was praised and blessed, so Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, is praised and blessed for all time, for all generations, even here in heaven. Boaz dealt with the enemy, purchased his bride and inheritance, and was praised and blessed for it. Just like pointing to an even greater way Jesus Christ to do all the same things. Boaz, as we'll see next week, paves the way and points to our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and there is no other. Ruth had no other Redeemer. No other Redeemer who was worthy, who was willing, who was able. If he didn't do it, nobody else would or could. In the same way, we have no other Redeemer. There is nobody else to put your hope in, your trust in, your faith in, And all along this life, there will be false hopes presented to you. This will save you and secure you, and there is no other. It's why we worship Jesus Christ exclusively. There is no other faith that is saving, no other name that will lead to our inheritance in heaven, no other God worthy of our praise and faith in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer.
Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the redemption you've provided in your son, Jesus Christ, that we were um, without hope. We were strangers and aliens lost to your covenant community. We were impoverished without a future. But our Redeemer has saved us, has eliminated the threat of the enemy has secured and purchased us by his blood. And may his name be praised forever and ever. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord. Root our faith, our lives in him. Not just for today, but for all of our days. And we praise you and thank you for the redemption you've accomplished not just promised, but accomplished in Jesus Christ that you have secured our inheritance and are guarding it through our faith. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Amen.